um, originally what we were, what I was trying to do, and our SL team was great. They were like, yeah, why don't you spread some love and um, have people do communion reflections? Amazing job again, Judith. That was super powerful. Um, awesome. Uh, and, and part of that was because sometimes it's hard to get pulpit supply, and so the SLT is trying to figure out ways to just give me some relief. And um, they, they first floated the idea of like, hey, you don't even need to teach it all on those Sundays. And I'm like, that sounds great. And then I realized I can't not teach just a little bit, just insane bits. I love it so much. It's very hard to be studying and reading and being in the Bible, and I just have that. I've got to exercise it out. So I'm going to do a micro-teaching right now. It'll be serve as kind of like an appetizer for next week. But this, this um, topic and this section of Scripture really does deserve um, a, a little bit of, of, well, more than I can give it this morning. So in our remaining um, 15 minutes or so, let me just continue teaching through the book of Corinthians. Now we get to the section that is specifically targeted, Paul is uh, teaching, on those who are virgins and the unmarried. So different than someone who was married and then maybe are now widowed, He's now speaking to those who are, in our parlance, we would say single. They've never been married. And I have some notes here. I said, you know, churches tend to act and sometimes even teach, actually, as if marriage is the prize that everybody should be striving towards. And until you achieve marriage, you're sort of in this, no one's going to say it out loud, second-class limbo, but it can feel like that when you're single and when you're unmarried. Singles can feel like kind of second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, and they're, and they're waiting to get married because that's when, uh, you know, in a marriage and family, and, and there can be sort of this presumption that that's when life's really going to start. That's one of the major milestone markers of a fulfilling, successful life, maybe even more so uh, from a Christian perspective. That's when real fulfillment is going to present itself, right? Uh, when we find our one true love, we live happily ever after, that's going to be the key that unlocks a fulfilled life. So we're waiting for that true love. We're waiting for God's uh, person for us, whatever language we might use, so that we can have fulfillment, so that we can have purpose, we can live happily ever after. But what's really important is to identify and describe that narrative or that script and to always ask ourselves, does that actually come from the Bible or from another kind of constellation of values that I've sort of merged with the Bible, not with any bad intention, or I've just presumed because I picked it up from the culture? Because certainly we live in a culture where um, finding and living into romantic love and you know, maybe in an even more precise way, some kind of ultimate sexual union is the is kind of peak humanity. That's the point of life. And there's different ways that gets reinforced. Is singleness then a stage that needs to be sort of sought to gotten, getting out of as, as early as possible? Um, is singleness really just a stage that you have to endure while you're waiting for true love's kiss? Or is that view formed much more by our culture's insistence that romantic and sexual love is the key, again, that unlocks the life that is really life? And until then, you're sort of in a lower gear. Well, that's what this section of Scripture is going to answer for us. And the answer is actually really surprising. And in, um, 
the decades that it was written in the, like the 60s, like the original 60s, um, it would have been very controversial. So I only have a few minutes to teach through this passage. So what I'm going to do is I want to read through it. I'm going to give you a little bit of context. I want to read through it. And I want you to just kind of note and highlight things that stand out to you. Now, what do you want to be highlighting or what are the things that might be standing out to you? Well, to know a little bit of the context will help you to move through this without your eyes glazed over and saying like, oh, I never noticed that before. That's interesting. Whether you were Jewish or Gentile in the first century, it doesn't matter which worldview background you come from. Being single and unmarried was a huge problem that needed to be urgently addressed. It didn't matter whether you were a pagan, whether you were a Jewish believer. Being single and unmarried was a huge liability. It was a deficiency for both men and women. Um, you can imagine in a highly uh, capital P patriarchal Roman society, the point of a woman's life was literally to get married and bear children. There would be other activities and other responsibilities she might have, but they are way down the priority list. Like number one with a bullet is marry and have children because that's the way you build a nation. That's the way you build the military. That's the way you build the economy. That's the way you ensure that your empire, in the case of Rome, is strong. And so there's a massive amount of social status to women who are married and have many children. That's why barrenness or infertility is such a shame, both within Roman culture and also within the Jewish context. There's a lot of women in the Old Testament that we learn about their story that they were barren. And we're kind of like, well, that's, that's heartbreaking, especially if you know um, if you're, or if you've experienced um, walking through some of those valleys in your own life. But it was catastrophic for a woman to not be able to bear children 2,000 years ago. Because your standing, your sense of social respectability, your sense of social legitimacy was very much tied to your ability to have children. And so women who were unable to bear children were practically seen as almost good for nothing. And it actually wasn't much different for men. There's a first century rabbi named Eleazar, and he says, this is the Jewish context, and he says, any man who has no wife, regardless of age, doesn't matter, any man who has no wife is not a proper man. We would say not a real man. The Talmud, which is an extended set of teachings based on the Old Testament, um, that was kind of vetted by the brightest, the most brilliant, most authoritative Jewish scholars and teachers and rabbis, said, a man who is not married at 20 is living in sin. Again, massive, massive value attached to being married so that you can have children. And these scripts, that you're not a real man, you're not a real woman, you're not really fulfilling your masculine mandate or your feminine mandate until you get married and have kids, those scripts still have a deep hold in some communities, especially like really conservative communities, whether religious or not, right? You listen to the language of some people in these communities, and it really does sound like they're advocating a view that the point of life, 
is to get married and have children. There might be other things that you do, right? But what will make, what will define your life and what should be the source of your sense of self-esteem, self-worth, legitimacy, social respectability is the fact that you are married and you have children. That's the ticket. Maybe, well, not maybe, this does have a not-so-nuanced um, Christian veneer when the language around marriage and family presumes that that is a God-given right, path, trajectory for everybody. And that that's the ticket to a real God-honoring legacy and an eternal impact. But again, those scripts might be very deep in our bones. We might reflexively say, yeah, that sounds good to me. Or I can kind of tell maybe Jeff's going in the direction of like, that's not what I should be thinking, but I kind of have. We want to always examine whether or not those scripts come from Scripture. Right? One of the core questions what it meant to be covenant was as covenanters were coming together and forming their theology and making decisions around um, how to live out their faith individually and as couples and as families and as church communities in the world, there was one question they always kept coming back to when someone said, well, we should be doing this as Christians. And that question was, well, where is it written? Are we forwarding an idea, a script that's like, oh, it might be a good idea, it might not even, you might not even reject it, but is, is it actually grounded in Scripture? And every generation has to sort of ask that question. That's why it's important to read the Bible, because every church, even ours, has things about it which are not biblical. doesn't mean they're anti-biblical, but they're not like in the Bible, and we want to make sure that those traditions, which might be good, don't become scripts that get connected with, well, that's what it means to be a real Christian. A real Christian, like a real church, would do call to worship, free songs, children's talk. Right? That's the real way, right? I mean, that's just an arbitrary organization. But you are in a culture long enough, and you kind of think, well, this is what it means. And then you go to another church, and you say, I can't believe these people call themselves Christian. They don't even sing songs. They just pray and sing their prayers to the we want to be careful. So I want to read through this passage once, and I want you to follow along. But now that you know some of this broader context around marriage and family and singleness, I want you to try and imagine yourself hearing these instructions read by whoever it is reading this letter from Paul to the Corinthian church as you're gathered on the Lord's Day. And I want you to take note of what might have stood out to you. Having grown up in a culture where marriage was seen as an absolute necessity in terms of social responsibility, social respectability, social legitimacy. And then I'll ask you, few for, uh, I'll ask you for a few, uh, just what you guys noticed, and then we'll sort of leave it on a bit of a cliffhanger and move into uh, final songs. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. Now about virgins, meaning those who are single, they've never been married. I don't have a command from the Lord, meaning... Jesus never taught on what to do in this situation. So I can't point back to a direct teaching of Jesus. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trusted. So he's saying there's, I don't have scripture to put in front of you, but I'm going to give you my perspective because God has appointed me as an apostle with authority, unique teaching authority, and I think I'm trustworthy. 
because of the present crisis, and that likely means some kind of famine, some kind of social unrest, some kind of immediate persecution for Christians or growing persecution, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. This is what Paul's been saying the whole chapter. Just remain where you are. You don't need to change your status in order to be a real Christian. Well, what, what if I'm single and I've never been married? What if I'm a 20-year-old man, Paul? Remain as you are. If you're pledged to a woman, like you're engaged, don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. More on that next week. That's one of those ones I don't have time in five minutes to get into. I'm glad no one was like, amen, from the back. That's a good sign. The knowing awkward laughter is also a sign, but again, we'll get to that next week. And then Paul says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is this. The time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free of concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. And an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs and her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided attention and devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards a virgin that he's engaged to, if his passions are too strong and he feels like he ought to marry, he should do as he wants, he's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. And in my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, meaning single, unmarried. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. What stands out to you about that passage? What do you think would be surprising or very confusing or very controversial to hear in the context of a first century? Totally. She wants to stay single. This is great. We're, we're kind of getting this vibe all the way through. Chapter 7. You're not married? Great. Married? Great. Married to a believer? Great. Married to an unbeliever? Yeah, stay as you are. There's no, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, there's no life status that is inherently, uh, that inherently sort of disrupts or negates God's work in your life. 
Could you imagine being a first century woman where from knee high to a grasshopper in both a religious and secular context, both worldviews have real divergence about a lot of things. One thing they did agree on was your worth and value as a woman is directly tied to being married and having kids. And to have a teaching apostle of Jesus say, yeah, you can remain unmarried. And actually, if you did, as a female, it would be better. If you, if you marry your betrothed, you haven't sinned. Paul's like, I get it. It's not for everybody. But if you can stay single, you can be devoted to the Lord. That is, like, in a way that is very, very difficult for us to appreciate. That is unbelievably challenging and empowering to Christian women. Because Paul is saying the fulfillment, the purpose, the importance, the value of your life has everything to do with what? Serving God. You will serve God. What an amazing life. She was serving God so much. It's such a shame, though. She was never married or had kids. That's not that's not Bible language. There's no but. That's a life to celebrate. There's no deficiency there. Amazing. And you're going to see this play out in the rest of Paul's letters and in the early church. Women begin occupying a place of influence in society that is distinct from them having to or feeling coerced. Now, many still marry. Again, Paul's going to say marriage is good. Having children is a blessing. Awesome. But it's not the end all and be all. Anything else in that passage to get to? Or shocking for you even to read it or to think about it? Part of what is here is an implicit acknowledgement that every believer has now been baptized and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so if you've been raised in, let's say, a religious or a secular culture, and let's go, let's lean into the more misogynistic end that would say, um, that's kind of like the deep Greek philosophy that would go into like, you know, women are sort of like half-formed men, and that's why, they, that's why the man is above the woman in the hierarchy, because all humans were meant to be men, and women were kind of like, got stuck along the way. So they sort of occupy this weird place between full humanity and full reasonable person and animal. So they need a man in order to teach and lead them. And again, that's not even offensive for a woman because that's all you know. That's all you've been exposed to. That's all you hear. And in some ways, some Jewish corners of the first century world, not all, but some would have reinforced that and just put a religious spin on it. And now Paul is saying, oh yeah, like you... I mean, I know that today it's popular to be like, I don't need no man. And that's kind of like a fourth wave feminist rallying cry. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. This is not about feminism. This is about realizing I don't need anything to have a fulfilling life except for Jesus and a desire to serve God. And in God's hierarchy of value, Women who are married or singles 
aren't lower than people who are married with children. That's not talking about women. Men or women. Singles aren't lower. And we know that because Paul has said earlier in the chapter that circumcised, uncircumcised, it, it doesn't matter. Free, slave, doesn't matter. Married, single, it doesn't matter. Not because both aren't valuable, but both are opportunity. But they're different opportunities. But they're an awesome opportunity. And Paul here, speaking personally, says, I actually see some more advantages being single. So between now and next week, maybe read this passage a few times, continue to take notes, but what I want you to hear, and this is something maybe I need to repent of and go back into my teaching and make sure that it doesn't get reinforced too much, is that marriage and getting married and having kids, some of these maybe more um, cultural and sometimes even religious markers of a successful life, a full life, can't come into your full masculinity until you're a husband and a dad. Can't come into your full femininity until you're a wife and a mother. It's good to value those things, but we don't want to idolize them. And we don't want to talk about them in a way that the Bible doesn't talk about, as if they're the end-all and be-all. So that those who are unmarried, whether never married or those who are widowed, and those who are in a season of singleness, we should never be interacting with them as if we pity them, as if we are, and honestly, not to be, even if, we shouldn't even necessarily be praying for them to find someone. We should be praying that they would know their gifts more and more, and we'll talk about this next week, and that they would move into the future. So we'll talk more about this next week, but I want you to hear, especially if you're single, and if that is either a source of shame or embarrassment or longing or it honestly feels like, you know, yes, I have God and I'm, I'm a Christian, but like, I don't feel like my life's going to start until I find my one true love. I want you to know as real as that feels to you, it's actually not true. You can have a deeply fulfilling, purposeful, God-honoring, life-shaping impact and a fulfilled life without being in a romantic relationship. That's important for you to know, and it's important for you to hear. You are not a second-class citizen, and God's highest priority in your life is not playing matchmaker. It's to open up opportunities for you to grow and to serve and to find fulfillment in Him. That's part one. We'll do a little bit more of a theology around singleness next week. Terry Marion, you guys want to come up?